Empire of the Sun. Suns. Empire of the Suns. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Wet like on book. Arizona Sports presents the Empire of the Suns podcast. Empire of the Suns. Hello there, and welcome to the Empire of the Suns podcast. My name is Kel Nolson, joined as always by Kevin Zimmerman. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Father's Day episode. Um, I will say Matt Ishbia knows when I'm sleeping, apparently, which is creepy to say that out loud, but I was asleep. I was taking a Father's Day nap when this came down. Happy Father's Day to you, by the way, pal. Thank you. Wait, are you two for two on sleeping during the trades then? Is that what you just confirmed? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so for new listeners, Kevin was indeed sleeping like the majority of the country, to be honest, when the Kevin Durant uh, trade broke in February. And this was more of an afternoon. You got it 10 hours earlier this time, but uh, the Bradley Beal trade breaks down. Uh, we're going to talk about our initial impressions on everything. And kind of run through the trade, what it means, what we're looking to going forward. And we are going to be back on Wednesday and then again Thursday after the draft. So we've got plenty of space and more time to let this uh, manifest and see what the team looks like and start to get more reporting that's surely going to be out in the coming days because the deal has not actually been finalized yet in terms of what it exactly looks like. And that might take uh, that might even take a week or two here as they look for somewhere to send Chris Paul, which is what we're going to be talking about in a bit. But one more plug before we go. If you're listening to this before uh, Monday afternoon, we are going to be live on the air, basically in the Burns and Gambo slot before the D-backs game. Uh, Juneteenth, the holiday, of course, but we were not supposed to have a uh, live programming. But you and I are going to be on with John Gambadoro from 2 to 3, and then from 3 to 4.30, it's just going to be you and I. So two and a half hours of live radio for me and you that we're basically calling an Empire of the Suns podcast, like just a two and a half hour edition or whatever that is, an hour and 40 minutes of talking. So plenty of uh, talking we're going to be doing here, buddy. And now is the time to talk, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to talk about. There are just so many layers to this, I think. So hopefully we don't, I mean... We're going to rehash some things, but tomorrow will definitely be more. I think we're going to map out some more detail, but this is just like, wow, instant reaction. Bradley Beal's on the Suns, kind of, not quite official, but yeah. So what we know so far is that the Suns are expected to send. That is how Woj worded it. Again, we we treat verbiage very seriously around here, Kevin. Uh, Chris Paul, Landry Shamit, multiple second round picks and pick swaps to the Wizards in exchange for Bradley Beal. This story seemingly came out of nowhere yesterday. Sham Sharania reported from The Athletic that there were basically two finalists for Bradley Beal, and I guess his trade market was very limited or it was direct to the point where Washington wanted to get this done by the end of the week because this just happened very quickly, not only them him phrasing it as two finalists, Miami and Phoenix, but also just Phoenix kind of factoring into this and then getting a deal done. 24 hours after that report came down that they were uh, seriously targeting or in talks to uh, go after Beal or whatever the case may be. Again, there are going to be a lot of people listening who have not been listening to our prior podcast, but something we are going to briefly be hitting on here and there is how limited the Suns maneuverability was this offseason. 
And there are going to be a lot of instant reactions from people who talk staring into a camera on television that talk about how the Suns are not going to have any depth and they shouldn't have done this and all this kind of stuff. They were staring at that problem no matter what. The way that I wrote it in my column was that potentially, depending on what happens with the rest of the roster, it's likely that the other scenario would have been the Suns were looking at someone who was worse as their fourth, fifth, sixth, and and seventh player, maybe to be kind and generous, but their third player, or, or better, I'm sorry, but their third player would have been far worse. And they ultimately decided to go top-heavy, and when we were looking at candidates to sign to the non-taxpayer MLE, to sign to the taxpayer mid-level exception in terms of waving and stretching Chris, when we were looking at potential DeAndre Ayton trades, potential Chris Paul trades, nothing was really alluring enough to look past this kind of proposal i think and that's why i think this is a a no doubt trade to me it makes complete sense i wrote about it yesterday and saying yes it's incredibly bizarre but it also just makes a lot of sense are are you with me just in terms of how logical this is despite how illogical it may seem and how people may want to initially react to it as illogical yeah i mean i i tweeted out the is it the thinking raptor meme which is like maybe the first meme ever of the internet times where it's like why would you build a bunch of veteran minimum contracts around Booker and Durant when you can build a bunch of veteran minimum contracts and construct a team around Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, and Bradley Beal. So I I think it's super logical. I I think it's a great move. I mean, I honestly haven't paid attention to Bradley Beal's just like outright play so much just because I I feel like nationally the Wizards are just not in the spotlight. Uh, but I I always looked at Brad Beal kind of like when he's healthy on Devin Booker levels to some degree. Obviously, I think Book's taken a few steps beyond that, being in the playoffs and all that. But it it makes a lot of sense for the cost, considering you, it, it's sunk cost on Chris Paul's contract. Shannon, we can we don't really need to talk about a whole lot there. Um, I will say Seth Partnow, who's um, he's written for different places, an analytics dude. Um, I respect his opinion has been taking heat on Twitter because he doesn't like it. Um, and, and I think there are some worries there and it's beyond the contract. It's just about fit when you have three heavy ball dominant players playing with one another. But I, I think he's in the same kind of, I bucket him in the same places like Katie and book where they just play basketball and, yeah, maybe he's not going to have as many big nights. Maybe KD doesn't have as many big nights. Maybe Book doesn't. But I, I don't see it being an ego problem or uh, the the silly, you know, can they share the ball this much? Um, I like it from that standpoint. But, yeah, there, there are a few defensive concerns. Um, but when we talk about how those three dudes fit together, I, I just think we don't there hasn't been enough discussion on at least Twitter, which is what I'm basing my perception of everyone else's reaction is in terms of like Booker's going to play point guard now. And I think we saw when Chris was out in the postseason when book was just dicing people up. I, I think that's another step in his evolution and I'm, that's what gets me more excited about this trade, honestly, than Bradley Beal being on the suns, to be honest, is seeing if, they think book can take it to another level and, and kind of just be this creator, I guess. Yeah. And he's, he's proven that Uh, the brief background on Beal, for those of you that are not familiar with him, 
He's been in the league for 11 years, was the number three overall pick out of Florida in 2012, primarily came into the league as someone with a really, really good looking jumper who was at least going to be a very good shooter and and a score to some degree. It was just a matter of how high the scoring upside was going to go for him. And he quickly developed into one of the best scorers in the league and not only one of the best scorers in the league, but one of the most efficient scorers in the league. Like it, there was an outcome here. Kevin, where we were looking at third bananas for this team and we were looking at guys like Terry Rozier who aren't necessarily uh, efficient or there could be other scores in this realm of like top 20 to top 40 players that weren't efficient. But that's an important thing to, to note about Bradley Beal. He's a career 46% shooter, but in the last five years, he's at 51, 45, 49, 46, and 48 for his field goal percentage. His three-point percentage has dropped off in the last half of his NBA career compared to the first half. But as we're going to talk about in, in future episodes and looking forward to the next season, his three-point percentage is going to go way back up. He was somewhere around, I think, like 35% in the last five years as opposed to more towards 40, 41% in the first half of his career, and he should be back um, towards that. Not necessarily a combo guard, I would say. I just think you get a really good value of playmaking from a two guard, if that makes sense. I think Book is an outright combo guard at this stage of his career. So that's why I believe that Booker will be the point guard. And I just think that this is when you factor in offensive talent, Kevin, and take in the fact that the three point shot exists, the level of skill that is in the game now and everything else that sort of is a factor now in the game that wasn't 20 years ago and just kind of eliminating teams on that note from the last century um, to go into that and just look at from like the year 05 on with what's required in the game. The only team, ironically enough, that stacks up to this in terms of a trio of offensive firepower is the Nets, and we hardly saw that team get on the court together with Harden, uh, Irving, and Durant. But this is just so much firepower, so much scoring, there's going to be no real way to double either of these guys. We saw Kevin Durant kind of go through it anyway, but when there's three of these guys on the court, and I would assume that Vogel's rotations are going to have it to where two of these guys are on the court pretty much at all times. And with that, there's just going to be no real way to defend either of the, either three of them. And they're just going to have incredibly efficient offense that is also extremely productive. So offensively, it's just far better of a picture than anything we could have imagined. Defensively is where you go more into and uh, offensively uh, to add to your point quickly. I've said this a couple of times. I think I said it on the podcast during the postseason. Like Booker's just one of the best point guards in the league now. He's a two guard, but when you stack him up at what a point guard does, and everyone listening who has for a while now knows how much I value what a point guard does in terms of determining how things go on the floor, who's getting the ball, the tempo, the flow, all that kind of stuff. Book's got those intricacies down to a certain extent, and he's also just a really incredible playmaker at this point in his career. So I really do believe that he's a top 10 point guard in the league right now, if that's like his full-time position or whatever you want to call it, when he really is, in all actuality, still going to be a two guard where he is the best guy on planet Earth right now. So a lot of this, uh, I agree, has to do with the faith in him to do that offensively. And I believe that it's just going to come down to how these three guys gel and get together. There's going to be a lot of experimentation in the regular season guys feeling each other out. There is not going to be enough ball for all three guys to take 20 plus shots a game. But then again, there's going to be limited talent around them anyway. So they should take the ball, but it's the ball and take the shots that much, but it's going to come down to how the three of them can share it because there is going to be as far as right now, there's not going to be a natural point guard out there to dictate it where you start to look at more roster balance and fit. Kevin is on the defensive end. 
because what's going to happen no matter what, and we talked about this with the Durant trade, but now it's ballooned even more, is that you're asking at least one of these guys to be very important defensively, and it's more likely going to be Booker and Durant, whereas Beal will take on the role that Chris Paul more or less did. I believe that Beal is a worse defender than Chris Paul. I don't think that that's crazy to say. I know that on ball he might be better, but off ball with what Chris provided just in terms of familiarity and everything that he could call out and his reactions and his instincts and all that kind of stuff, it's there. But now, Kevin, it's like, okay, do you go the Akogi route? Do you just have a wing come in who defends point guards? Uh, Okay, so if he's guarding Paul George, who's guarding Kawhi Leonard, if he's guarding Zion Williamson, who's guarding Brandon Ingram, and who's guarding CJ McCollum, there are matchup things to kind of figure out, and they can go three routes, Kevin. They can get a point guard, basically, quote-unquote, like get a Patrick Beverly we've talked about, for example, to be the size of a point guard and defend point guards, or they could get a traditional wing, someone like a Kogi, but a little bit bigger, or uh, as David, our Australian correspondent, was kind of pointing out, they could just play Durant at the three and then go huge and just get a really big four or like a more traditionally sized four and have Durant and Booker really take on those defensive responsibilities in the perimeter as well as Beal. Um, I don't know which option is better, but that's part of me saying, and, and to our overall point, Kevin, is that we can't really grade this trade beyond thinking it was smart to do in terms of the grand scheme of the team because we don't even know what the team looks like yet. A lot of it's contingent on what they can do. And, and that's where, Kevin, you can kind of break down what they can do right now, right? Which is... Not not a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I guess the quick way to sum it up is the three years on Dur- it's Durant and Beal have three years left, right? So they're, they're going to be in the second apron, which is upcoming, which is a new thing. Um, and it's believed, I, I believe this is not um, like in print yet, but basically the Suns are going to have mid-level exceptions if they go over the tax and that's where down the road, we'll get into whether they keep DeAndre Ayton or not. But I, I think the Beal addition does allow them to kind of go out there and say, okay, like we can sign Josh Okoge and accept that he's not going to be a great offensive weapon, um, even in the playoffs. And you can even go out and add a, a point guard who's kind of the same idea where it's like, okay, great defender, but maybe doesn't shoot like Matisse Thibel's not I, I don't even know i think he's a free agent maybe not he's probably going to make too much money but that's the type of player where it's like okay if someone's even just that good on defense like we'll take him because depending on the matchup of the team like if you're playing the warriors and you just like okay i need to shut down steph curry and we need the point guard defender to play today maybe a kogi doesn't play right um and, and you can make those decisions so i think just having three awesome shooters um, as your core three is really going to help. And that was kind of the problem with the foursome of Aiton and Paul with Booker and Durant was Paul just never really caught on as that guy who's just going to be like, make you pay as a shooter. And he wasn't the best defender either. So now at least in the third best player, you have that. And I think that's super valuable because Man, again, like you, you talk about offensive firepower, you talk about playmaking, like Beal, what he's like at five, uh, over five assists per game. Like he's not going to be book level point guarding, but he's definitely capable of like making plays off what he can do. So I, I, I think, again, that's why it's 
kind of a no-brainer and why it's not a big risk in in terms of defense. I guess the one defensive question I'll have too is if Book is the starting point guard, how does he match up against point guards basically? And and that's something that they're going to have to address. Yeah, we and we'll touch on that here in a bit in term when it comes to exactly what the roster could look like and what their options are for making it look a certain way. I just want to hammer again, Bradley Beal is excellent at basketball. We went through this whole charade three years ago when people just didn't know how good Chris Paul was, and they just knew him as this guy who got hurt all the time and never won in the playoffs and always just came up short and all this kind of stuff that was past his prime and all that nonsense. And then immediately by the fifth or sixth game, I just remember people being like, oh, man, like I just, yeah, I I didn't know. And I think that'll be the same with Beal. He's a borderline top 25 player in the league, in my opinion. I've seen like player rankings come out, like the ringer has that exercise that they're doing. And they had him at like 42, I want to say, something like that. And I get part of it is because he hasn't won yet. And part of it is because of his contract and all that kind of stuff. But he is a very excellent basketball player. And he comes with playoff experience, Kevin. He, He played in 45 games and early in Washington's uh, his time in Washington when they were really going, you'll remember that second uh, his second time in the playoffs he was 21 and he averaged 23 points, five rebounds, five assists per game while shooting only 40 percent from the field. But I thought that was his really breakout, like oh this guy's going to be a future All Star kind of thing he was doing in the postseason. And like I said, 45 games of experience, so he's been there before. But it's been a while, and it's been a while since he's been able to prove how much of a winning player that he is and certainly has that uh, label attached to him as a, as a star. So he's kind of gone through what Booker did throughout the early course of his career and is kind of back on that trajectory where he's going to want to prove that. But yeah, he's he's just really, really, really good. And I recommend going to the site and going to ArizonaSports.com and seeing some of the videos that I posted just of his skill with the ball because the way that I wrote it is... He's been the only player for years now where he kind of reminds me of Booker because Booker is so unique with the way that he plays. I think most players in in themselves are unique, but I, Booker is one where I didn't even know when he even really reminds me of him. I know people say Kobe or whoever, right? But Beal is the one in the in the league where it feels like he has like a similar game to him just in terms of rhythm and tempo. Some of the stuff they do in the mid range, there's a lot of similarities there, and they have two of those guys now in terms of their scoring and. To think about it simply, if you do understand how good Bradley Beal is, he's their third best player. Uh, I looked at the leaders in points per game in the last five seasons combined. All three of those guys are in the top 10. The next highest rankings, Kevin, for a team with three, like a trio basically, was New Orleans. And it was Zion, Ingram, and McCollum. And I think McCollum was like 28th. All three of them were outside the top 10. (laughs) All three of the Suns guys are in the top 10. It's just a crazy amount of uh, scoring, by the way, Kevin. Uh, free throws, Beal in the last, across the last five years has averaged over six free throw attempts per game. So has Booker, so has Durant. They're the only team, again, with that type of uh, profile in terms of free throws. And I just think all three of these guys are going to shoot way more threes next year. And I think that schematically, when you look at this team, I think that there would be doubts if you had certain coaching in mind. Like I would say, Kevin, if... Monty was the coach right now, I would be concerned about him spreading the ball out to all three guys based on what we saw in the very early returns on the Durant era. But with Kevin Young, I think that there's more optimism there. Certainly, at least it'll be a change, but more so the more important and defensively, that's where Vogel is. And Vogel will figure this out. And I know this is going too far, Kevin, but I wrote that 
I think Booker could threaten for an all defense spot. And I think that he's going to really step up his game defensively even more and embrace it because of what Vogel's going to want out of him and demand out of him. I think that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. is, is DA staying? Ooh. So right I... now, they <laughs> can only sign guys on the veterans minimum, and that's pretty much what they're looking at regardless of a trade. They would have to trade Aiden for cap space, basically, to figure out another way. Send him to San Antonio for nothing. Um, it's unclear what his value is, but I don't know. What do you think? How do you see it? Yeah, since our last podcast, I think they will look at trades, and I don't think it's make or break. You have to trade them this offseason. I think with him especially, you need to get something of value, and if it's just like cap savings, they will not make a trade. Like They need good rotation players back, and again, I don't think his market's there. I think you know, maybe if you can swing a three-way deal and get like San Antonio to send you one of a, their younger good defenders or something and, and get rid of them, yeah, do it. But I don't think there's a rush because honestly, like his contract gets better as the new salary caps come out, as the years pass. And even if it's, you know, maybe at the trade deadline and you just say, okay, this isn't working, or he hasn't taken to Vogel's coaching and shown that he can be better. Like maybe you trade him then and just you just eat, you know, losing that for nothing. I don't think there's a rush to trade him, honestly. Like the the issue is again, the apron for the next three years, like they won't have a mid-level exception. Their taxes, tax bill is gonna be awful. But you might as well kind of roll through at least half of this year or even a full year and see what happens and dangle him as obviously that's happening, but I just don't see a good reason to do it just to do it. If if that makes sense. Um, like I definitely think they're going to try, but I, I just don't know if you need to rush it because I don't think that's going to really make or break anything, especially if you're not getting anything back, that's going to be useful. Right. I, I, I guess I, I disagree. I think you do need to rush. I think you need to figure out what this team is right now. Like you need to, okay. I, I don't think that you can take a year. I, maybe I would have felt differently last year, but now DA is kind of unequivocally proven that he can't be relied upon in the postseason. It's I got into this in, in the Beal column and I just wrote that you can't, you're gambling so much already. So to risk your, chances on DeAndre when you know that there's a really good chance that he will be inconsistent when you need him the most. It just doesn't make sense to me, and I don't think it would be smart. And I think that the hit on value, whatever it is, if they get little in return, I just think that that's worth it for them. And I know that's a hot take. I know a lot of people are excited about the Vogel uh, equation of all of this and how he can help untap DeAndre or whatever, again, untapping a player who is entering his sixth NBA season, to be clear, uh, who has had these problems dating back to college. You can read our stuff on the site from 2018 when we're talking about a lot of these problems that have still consisted. I, again, am not ruling out that outcome. I'm not ruling out that DeAndre is going to move to a team or play for the Suns next year under Vogel and play the best basketball of his career and start to look like the guy we all expected him to be. I am extremely aware that if they trade DeAndre Ayton, they are going to have someone who is much worse playing center for them. But are they going yeah. to have a much worse fit? No, they are not. They are going to have a much better fit. And I think that some of that matters. And I think that it will help the team 
overall just in a, in a vacuum um, if, if they were moving on from him. I just think we're at that point now. So that's just based on that alone. And then when you get to the roster construction standpoint of this, it, it the, the unknown number one now, of course, is still Aiden's trade value, Kevin, but unknown number two is like, so who could they really get on the veterans minimum? Are they going to be able to actually steal a starting caliber player on the veterans minimum? Are they going to be able to get three useful key rotation players? And I'm not talking like, oh, this is this would be the sixth man on the Suns, but he would be the 11th man on a team that's really deep, like New Orleans or whatever, for example, off the top of my head, or Boston. Um, no, like, can they get actually those types of guys who would be top seven, top eight, top nine guys on any team in the league? Can they get that done in free agency? I often lean towards no in these situations, Kevin, just because uh, a long time Twitter trend for me has been celebrating when guys get overpaid because I think that guys should get as much money as possible and they should get paid. I can't wait to see how much money Cam Johnson gets. If it's in nine figures, I will be running up and down the street so happy for him. I did the same when P.J. Tucker finally got paid, like a a long track record there. So with that kind of mindset, someone taking a discount to come here, I don't know. But at the same time, if there was one team around the league where guys would take the veterans minimum to play, it would be here. And I know that that's some people... Hearing that and automatically going, well, uh, what about Milwaukee? What about this team? No team can guarantee playing time like Phoenix can right now. Phoenix could potentially have two starting spots open to offer. If Mason Plumlee or even someone on the higher spectrum of centers like Yaka Pertl is looking around and Yaka Pertl is like, okay, I could go get $12 million a year with this contender and have like this fringe kind of role where I'm playing 20, 25 minutes a game or I'm like coming off the bench even. Or I could go to Phoenix where I'm going to play 32, 34 minutes a game and be one of their most important players, take it for a year, and then really get paid next year off of that elevation if if they believe in themselves that much and, and as opposed to taking the payday. But that's doing a lot of – I'm doing a lot of work on that, I think, and, and taking liberties for sure. So I, I think that matters too with what they could – because there is a, an outcome where they trade DA – they don't trade DA, I'm sorry, and they still have enough depth. But it's I think it's just extremely unlikely – uh, but they would know better than me. Yeah, I mean, that's what's most interesting about this is just how perception matters. And I, I guess the veterans minimum, like guys have been around, like how that works is those guys get paid a lot if you've been in the years 10 years versus three years. Um, so in that respect, like the vets minimum actually can – not be a terrible payday for some of these guys who want to go chase rings and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, to get back to DA real quick, I I guess there's something to be said to your point about moving him to figure this out now, right? Like if you even wait to the trade deadline, we discussed how quickly the Suns are trying to figure out KD even last year and fit him in. If it's just like, all right, we want a full season without DA, we have to learn how to operate. Maybe we go to more small ball. Maybe we need to find who we can trust. And you have a full season to do that. There's value in that. Um, but yeah, it's tough, man. It's it's a money thing that they're going to have to decide on at some point. And just to hammer that point home, um, I guess it, it's important to point out, Matt Ishbia talks about Money's not important to him as far as maybe you lose money in the short term, but 
if you're more successful, the money will come back to you. Um, (laughs) It's hard to argue that when he says that time and time again, that he's not actually, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk, that makes sense. So I think we got to point that out where like, yeah, the new owner can come in and say they're going to do everything to win. You can be excited about it because he replaced Robert Sarver. He acts differently. He says things differently. He's very much involved in all these processes more, um, at least publicly. But uh, when you are just like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to eat the tax bill for the next three years if I have to, um, like credit to that. Like, I, I think that's an important thing. And I'm sure when we talk about those veteran minimum contract guys, possibly thinking about the sons, uh, they see that and they see that the owner does not give a crap about what's happening in his checkbook right now. And that he's trying to build a winner and a few other news items is their coaching staff is filling out miles. Simon bear down. Um, John Lucas through the third, like these guys have reputations too in the league and just everything they're doing right now is going to play toward attracting those free agents um, who might have to take a pay cut to be on a good team. Yeah, for sure. On the Aiden front, I think one more thing worth mentioning is there's no Chris Paul around anymore. So a lot of facilitating DeAndre's current role in the offense was through two man game with Chris he would have to now develop. He has some of a two, somewhat of a two man game with Devin, obviously, but he would need to develop a two man game even further with these guys to have an offensive role. And his offensive role is going to diminish even further with the addition of Beal. So he would, I just don't understand how he would be happy with it as well, based on what we know about that situation and what he's looking for. But I mean, if, hey, if he comes in here and Vogel tells him, hey, you're going to make first team all defense with me if you just do what we need you to do, and he likes that, then hey, great. Have him back. I mean, he but. team team. How teams defend this team? Th- there might be games where he just gets thirty by taking fifteen shots because they're so worried about the three. So I think in that regard, he's going to have an easy time scoring a lot, to be honest. And it might be by game basis, and then he scores ten points the next game. But I don't know. I I I know like. I told you the story you wrote about why they should have taken Luca that you wrote in 2018 before the draft. It reads exactly as the scouting report reads exactly the same as it does now for DA, and that's not good. Um, but there's something to be said about change if he trusts his coach and the coach talks to him. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of factors, but I just can't get past the primary yeah. of being honest. Yeah. Go back to the parameters of the trade. Chris Powell, Chris Paul's trade value is pretty much non-existent. The the team is going to have to reroute him somewhere. There's going to, have to be a third team involved because the dynamics of this deal involved Washington taking on nearly all of the guaranteed money. I believe it's twenty five million, and they are going to now send him somewhere else. And it seems like based on the way that all of this news developed. I would sure hope based on all the work we've done today, Kevin, that this deal is sorted no matter what, even if they can't find a team for Chris, are they just going to take him on and wave him? Or are they going to cancel call the trade back altogether? I would sure hope not, but it seems like we're all locked in here at this point. And at a certain extent, I'm sure their um, fallbacks kind of in place because waving and stretching Chris does not make any sense for Washington because it, it's not the small little wave and stretch amounts that we were talking about with Phoenix, because that include waving him, um, that included the guaranteed salary. It's now the fully guaranteed 
salary are just about there. And it would be something like, I believe, around $5 million a year each year over the next five years if they wave and stretched him. They are rebuilding. They do not want to have that extra salary hanging around. They found a way to incorporate Landry Shaman and get value out of his contract. He was not valuable for the team on the court. He tried his best. He worked hard, but it just never worked out for him here. And they got something out of that contract, which is to be commended, honestly. And instead, more people seem to be talking about or, or referring to Shamit like he was a useful piece for the team. And to be blunt about it, he just wasn't. And I thought that there was going to be really no way for them to trade him unless he was attached to one of these guys in a deal. And that's what they were able to do. That non-guarantee in the last two years, the Suns did really well with that in mind. Uh, we do not know the details yet of the second-round picks or the pick swaps, and that's actually really important because I know people are pick swaps, first-round picks, like, oh, whatever, they don't have any first-round picks. They have one next year, and they have one in 2026, and they have one in 28. So there's certain stuff in there already. I believe the pick swap with Brooklyn was for 28, if I remember off the top of my head. I'm not exactly sure, but all of that yeah, stuff. 2028, yeah. Okay, yeah, so all of that stuff is a factor now because the Suns are basically going to have to build their roster through the draft, vet minimum signings, and two-way signings, and really hoping in particular they hit on draft picks and long-term signings, or uh, sorry, two-way signings, because as an example, Jordan Goodwin was involved in this trade. He's a pretty less-known player, even for people like you and I who watch the league all the time. He played 1,100 minutes for Washington this year, was more of a... Uh, G League standout more than anything, but got his chance with Washington this year and really impressed with his energy. Just like from what I've seen and what I, the, the limited I've seen of him play and more what I've heard about him, it's another version of Josh Akogi for this team where he's just super hustle play, super gritty, tough defender, fills up the statute everywhere else. The shooting is kind of a concern, but a really smart cutter, really smart player overall. And he is under contract for not only next year, but the year after that has a team option. And guess what, Kevin? If he's good they can re-sign him, which is important. And Ishpia <laughs> will load up that tax bill even further. That's the problem is that if, if they get veterans minimum guys, Kevin, on um, those contracts, it's hard to like re-sign them beyond that. And, and most of them are going to be older guys anyway. So I think there's a lot there. We'll talk about Goodwin more next week. Uh, honestly, but for just speaking for myself, I want to watch more of him to see if we can start to get optimistic about him being a key rotation piece of this team, but at the very least, picking up someone who had a lot of moments last year and, and seemed to impress and seemed to at least certify himself as an NBA player next year is, is a decent head start on on all of this. Uh, it's it's like the TJ Warren thing where you just need someone who can maybe play rotation minutes. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the defensive... You know, he's 6'3", kind of a bigger point guard size. If he can defend point guards, like, maybe he's that guy already. And, you again, it's just filling roster spots at this point where you you need people on cheap contracts. And if you add another player, that's one less you've got to figure out. We should re-hit on the draft, Kevin. We talked about that last week for a bit. And I have a column going live Monday morning just talking about how the Suns have to prioritize the NBA draft. I wrote this before the Beal trade, and it's even more important now because as we went over, there are limited options for the Suns to go about it. And you're probably telling yourself, well, they don't have any first-round picks. Why does it all really matter? Well, you can buy second-round picks. Now, it rarely happens, especially in the top half of the second round, 30 to 45. But it can happen, and and it does happen every now and then. And what Ishbia has shown as we hit on, is that he is willing to spend money where he can and where he can help the team with his 
deep pockets, he helped them build a really good assistant coaching staff, for example, and now he is going to help them with the luxury tax payments. And for people saying, well, how much is it worth it to really go and get a pick in that kind of range, from the 2017 draft to the 21 draft, here are players that were selected in the top half of the second round. Dylan Brooks, Jalen Brunson, Mitchell Robinson, Gary Trent Jr., Jared Vanderbilt, Bruce Brown, Nick Claxton, Cody Martin, Daniel Gafford, Jalen Noel, Xavier Tillman, Trey Jones, Herbert Jones, and Io Dosunmu. Those are some pretty good basketball players, and most of the guys picked in that range, Kevin, they flop. But even going for the flop would be worth it for the Suns, and they would be positioning themselves with those types of contracts where there's non-guarantees in the latter year, so they wouldn't be necessarily handicapped by that. And even then, it's going to be just a couple million dollars. I think it'll be between one or two anyway. So if they get that player uh, in and they are an immediate contributor or they're a contributor in years two or three or three and four, it's still a heck of a bargain, and they don't really have another way of acquiring these players. The two-way market is something you and I have talked about extensively. For those that are unfamiliar, basically there is a crop of undrafted players that that are some of the top undrafted players, and they immediately get signed to two-way deals the night of the draft. The Suns have pretty much never taken uh, part in this uh, frenzy of signings, and a dynamic that has really evolved in the last couple of years has been guys who can get picked in the second round telling teams, actually, I have a two-way agreement with this team, so don't draft me. That happened with Lou Dort. I don't know for sure if it happened with Austin Reeves or not, but those are just two notable guys on two ways who recently have gone on to be pretty important players who are making a whole lot of money. And again, those are guys that the Suns can sign and then or can re-sign after this because that's going to be a lot of it is their flexibility over the next three years is going to be pretty much non-existent. So any way that they can add these players that they can keep around long-term, they have to really get on that. And the draft is going to be their best way of doing it, even if it is buying a second-round pick and going after the two-guard from Xavier that was ranked 92nd on draft boards. Yeah, I mean, the the draft, I think, is so interesting. Um like what even if DA is not traded that night, I, I think that either buying in or being active in that market's gonna be a big deal. Again, it's just money right now. <laughs> you would like to pay a little bit of money and not a lot of money and add some guys. And again, there are a lot of good especially with the pandemic, not that the pandemic was good at all, but there are guys who were in college for five years who are like should be ready to go if if they profile out, you know who they are. Um, it can help you right away. So I, I think that opportunity is going to be there easy. It, it will be for sure, and they need to take advantage of it without a doubt. We will talk more about that next week and sort of zoom out and get better perspective on exactly what we're going to be talking about while zooming in. So minimum targets, guys that are rumored to be. Interest of interest to the Suns on the free agent market and then potential targets in the second round of the NBA draft or the late first round of the NBA draft. We mentioned a couple of names last episode. We'll get more into them midweek of next week. Before we go, we should talk about Chris Paul and Landry Shamit. I wrote a lengthy column on ArizonaSports.com about Chris Paul's stay. Um, the main thing that I focused on uh, for myself, at least, was just how much uh, how how grateful I was to get the opportunity to cover him when the trade happened. I really couldn't believe it because I was going to cover one of the greatest players of all time, certainly one of the best point guards of all time, and getting to know his game on 
I don't want to say an intimate level, but just getting to really know the intricacies of his game beyond what we had seen from watching it, watching him in a national perspective was really great. He was always nice to talk to. I wrote in the piece that I really felt stupid whenever I asked him about some little nuance because it's Chris Paul that I'm asking it about. Who's one of the smartest basketball players ever called him a basketball genius. And it was just uh, really cool to get to cover this chapter of his career. And even in three years, Kevin, I think it's pretty undoubted. He's pretty undoubtedly a son's legend icon or whatever you want to call it. And should be in the ring of honor in short order. Once he uh, retires. The weirdest thing, and this just might be me, but it just felt like his stay was so short. And unfortunately, I think the notion of him being injured all the time, failing in the playoffs, was already a stigma on him when he came to the Suns. And then even though he (laughs) was second team All-NBA his first year, took them in the NBA Finals, was awesome the last two years, despite the injuries at the end of the seasons, like that's still going to hang around, right? So I'm, I'm curious how, like other, I guess fans see him because like Charles Barkley wasn't around very long either. But Charles Barkley obviously became this. It is still celebrated so much here. Steve Nash was around a lot longer. Um, you could make arguments. I think that. Chris Paul, at least for one year, was maybe playing at a higher level than Steve Nash in a large chunk of his time here. Um, Despite, like, two MVPs, I know that was just, you know, he took the electricity of this team and just, like, switched it on. So that's where it gets super complicated as far as talking about his legacy, but it's all perception-based, right? I, I think, yeah. Like you said, it's Hall of Famer playing some of the best basketball of his career. Even like, I don't know if he would agree with that, but no, that's a really important part to hit on. Yeah, he was elite. He was one of the best players in the league for two years here. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't really know. It just feels like it's disconnected from how he will be celebrated, and I, I want to just like push back against that because even Suns fans who are super appreciative of him, I think won't view him in the same light as like Nash or Barkley when maybe because Devin Booker is here too. And that's a, that's a big piece of it. But I, I, I think he played awesome basketball at least one year where it's like, man, there not been what maybe even five individual seasons better than that one in team history. I guess you can make arguments, maybe 10, but that's that's where I see him. And what he did as an old point guard too, win shares is not a tell-all metric and I rarely use it, but it does a, an okay job of like putting together a season and putting a number on it. And among point guards that were 35 years or older, when you su- submit it by win shares and look at the best rankings, there's some John Stockton seasons in there. Obviously, there's a Steve Nash season in there. And then it's his two years, his first two years here. Like that's the level to which he was at. And then a couple below him are Jason Kidd in those last years in Dallas, Gary Payton on the Lakers. Like he was incredible. And we, I think it was really, that's where most of my head goes is just getting to see him at that level. I think the playoff failures are what they are. He got hurt. And I know a lot of people don't like that as an excuse, quote unquote, but it's just what happened. He kept getting hurt and his body just kept letting him down over and over again. 
I mean, he played in that Lakers series through that shoulder injury and then still gave them something in that series and then recovered enough from it. Like he played through these injuries a lot. He had the torn ligaments in his hand when he had the game six masterclass in, uh, in LA against the Clippers in the Western conference finals, that Denver series, he absolutely stampeded them. It was ridiculous how much he was just better than anything that Denver could cook up to try and stop him in the way that he was running the offense book goes down in game two against new Orleans last year. And then Paul bridges eight and they all step up in different ways. Chris has an an incredible game six. He doesn't miss. I think that's going to be a with me covering the playoff runs that I have so far. That's probably top three in terms of moments that I'll remember just because of how electric that building was and then how it just slowly and slowly the juice just fell out of the arena and it was just him doing it. (laughs) The thing I wrote, Kevin, is like the sound. And I think we talked about it that night on the podcast, the sounds that they were making. It wasn't even groaning when, when he started shooting the ball in the second half. It was just like, a, oh, my gosh, like, is this seriously going to go in again? And they like knew it was going to go in because a lot of those fans in that building had watched him in the first half of his career. Like it was it was really uh, special to see that game specifically live and just a lot of his performances as well. The nuances of his game I've talked about so many times, just how unique of a player he is. And like the one thing that I focused on the most was that I think he was a genius with basketball and I think he made me smarter watching the game. I think he made you smarter watching the game. I think he made everyone listening smarter watching the game. And I would just have friends texting me about drop coverage. And I was like, what? (laughs) And then they would be like, Oh yeah. Well, like you said, like when Chris is like, and and then they were talking about like Chris specifically. And then they were like, man, I I can't believe they're giving us the corner three tonight with a weak side defender. And I was like, what? (laughs) My friends who don't talk about intricacies with basketball, they'd be like, well, yeah, that's the one that Chris always gets or else DA rolls in. Like, you know, I'm like, man, like it's, that's just like a crazy legacy for him to have. And considering how much he loves the game and how much his game is about how intelligent he is with it. I think that's a pretty cool legacy for him to have. And that's what I wanted to focus on instead of the lack of a championship. Cause I think that's just a lot more down the line. I think that if he would have been healthy for those, I think it would have been a different story. And we would talk about it a different way. I still would have focused on the positives. I think with his day, cause it was an overwhelmingly positive stay. And yeah, he goes, I don't know what the order is. And you and I don't want to talk about that. Like Booker, Monty, James, him in terms of who was the most responsible. I guess it's book by default, number one, but after that, you can argue any three of those guys. And I think Chris is right there in it with how he not only boosted them forward, but helped teach the young guys how to win too. The the thing about his basketball smarts is he made everything simple, right? It's like they're playing drop coverage. I guess I should learn how to shoot the mid-range there. Um, the rip-through move, if they're going to change the rule against us, I'm just going to – be a step ahead and take advantage of it like that little stuff. And, and like, if you've listened to podcasts, him talk about it, I won't even try to say what he, he says, but he just makes it so clear. And like, why wouldn't I do that? And, and explain like, that's my natural motion. Like when I ripped through, I was just trying to, but n- very few other players do that. And when they do do that, it's, Oh, he, he took the Chris Paul rip through move. Um, Things like that are, it's when they probably say this about artists and stuff that I don't, I'm not, I don't follow art, but like geniuses make things sound simple, right? It is what I'm getting at. And that's what I appreciate about just like watching him and learning from him and that kind of thing. 
It was great, man. Uh, Going to miss covering him for sure, just like I'll miss covering uh, the guys that they've traded. Uh, Landry was a beloved teammate. He worked so hard when he had the big game against Denver. I think it was Mikel who tweeted, I just know my boy works too hard. And like, that's the whole point. He works so hard. They're obvious confidence, assertive, aggressive problems that are plaguing him at this point in his career. But we all know the skill set in front of him, and it's similar to DeAndre. It's similar to a lot of players at this stage in their career when they get to their mid-20s, and you can see the type of player that they could be. But it's just ultimately if they can channel that talent, channel that skill, and just deploy it in kind of the right way. And and that's what he's got. Um, We've seen it at times, but even the blips were very minimal. And it was... um, one of the bigger swings and misses of the Jones tenure so far was giving him that contract. I mean, they found a way to make it useful, like I wanted to mention earlier in the podcast. But, uh, man, again, I thought he was like the perfect third guard to put next to Booker and Paul, and then he couldn't even really get in the rotation and got in the rotation more than than he should have, to be honest. But, again, like he was beloved. The team, Everyone on the team loved him and knew how hard he worked, and he was great to interact with. I think a lot of guys in his position could have found ways to make excuses. He had, he had all these injuries come up. He had all of these inconsistent roles come up. Now he's playing point guard. Now he's like the third guard out there. Now he's this, now he's that. And he was always never making excuses, was the most critical of himself always. And just like spoke in a really candid way that uh, is always appreciated from someone in, in my position. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we talked about it. His... He keeps getting traded. That's that's one of those things as a player. And I think I actually watched Lou Williams talk about like possibly retiring at some point when he landed with the Clippers because he announced his retirement. And he just talked about like those moments are tough, man. When when you're that player and it's like maybe this is the end of the road for me, but that's probably what Landry's going through going to the Wizards right now. But yeah, I mean you have. NBA skill sets and hopefully he figures out how to be more consistent and all that good stuff. Um, will be interesting. I mean, I'm curious, I guess to put a wrap on this, what that final trade package is going to look like. If Chris Paul is redirected, if they can figure that out, um, if he, I don't see him landing with the wizards and playing for them is is where i'm at but yeah those two guys like gave a lot to this team and obviously with money going out um kind of made sense with landry and getting that money off the books too that would be a crime if he was spending his last days not his last days necessarily but at least one of his last seasons in a situation like that like it just wouldn't be deserved. Uh, and obviously where he goes is going to be uh, a factor, Kevin, because if he goes to a contender, which is where he's going to go, he's going to land on a contender somewhere. Uh, it will factor in with the Suns. Like if he goes to the Lakers or the Clippers, that is a big time upgrade for either of those teams. Chris Paul is still very, very good. And I'm sure people, some Suns fans will write it off like, oh, well, we know he's going to get hurt in the playoffs, so it doesn't matter anyway. It's like, oh, okay, what if there's the one time where he does stay healthy or one of the few times he does stay healthy and then all of a sudden like they're, they're a serious threat. We've seen what he can do at certain rounds. Like, what if you get him in the first round? What if you get him in the second round? Like, it's not just such an easy thing to write off. And it's a uh, a big factor inside of all of this. Uh, do you want to uh, plan for a radio show now and, and shut off the podcast? What do you say? Yeah, yeah, we should do that. 
All right. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. Again, ArizonaSports.com for all the written content. And you can listen to the radio shows from anywhere in the entire world. I don't know if you're on, like, Jupiter or Saturn, if we extend out that far. I'm guessing we do. Like, or at the very least, you could get a VPN access out there if we have an astronaut listening by some chance. But listen to the shows. We're on tomorrow, and we'll be on uh, the rest of the week. And draft week on Thursday, we'll have a draft show on Thursday as well. Until then, goodbye.